Welcome to the latest issue of Talking About Methods and today I'm really delighted to be interviewing Sarah Radcliffe about decolonising research questions. Sarah is a Fellow of the British Academy and a Professor of Latin American Geography at the University of Cambridge and over several decades she's undertaken collaborative work with civil society organisations and grassroots communities throughout the Andes, particularly in Ecuador, Peru and Chile. And currently she's undertaking research in Ecuador and Peru on Indigenous citizenship. Sarah, we're so delighted to have you along to talk to us today. I wonder if you could tell our audience a little bit more about the sort of research that you do. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much, Linda, for inviting me today. The research I do is very ethnographic. It involves talking and working very closely with the grassroots communities with which I want to do collaborative research. And that involves participating in various meetings or going along to plough a field or sitting in a bus as somebody is going along to a meeting and listening to what people are saying and talking to people from the basis of what I observe in their everyday lives. But because I've been working with Indigenous organisations as well, it sometimes involves talking to leaders of those organisations, and that requires probably more of a sort of formal interview than participatory observation over their working day. So my interest really is in the experiences of citizenship and development from the perspective of Indigenous groups, particularly in those countries in Latin America, and how people live lives which reveal the gap between what is in policy, what is in law, and the realities of their everyday lives and the struggles that they face to feed their families or to get clean water or healthcare and to get dignity and equal treatment to others in those countries. So the aim is really to look at the responses, both adaptive responses and critical responses of grassroots populations of Indigenous people to the scenarios that they face and the problems that they face. That's going to be so interesting to our audience, which we hope is mainly made up of early career academics just doing their first bout of field work. Socio-legal scholars are very much about a bottom-up approach, so I know that that will chime with a lot of people's interests. You've obviously worked in the Global South, we've already made mention of that, but you've talked about the process of decolonising our research questions, which is really what I wanted to get you to focus on today because it's such an important question. I wonder if you could tell us more about what's motivated that work. I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that decolonizing for me is not a sort of simple checklist of things that one can do before embarking on a research project, but rather it's a sort of ongoing process of reflecting on the nature of research and how one is doing it. And I am by no means saying that I have found this sort of decolonial, you know, sort of ideal route. But I think that some of the questions that I ask myself might be of interest to listeners of your podcast in the sense that I think that many of us are trained in our own disciplines to have particular lenses through which we approach research questions and then we have analytical frameworks that apply for a particular set of data. And I think that one of the things that happens with that is that the Western Academy becomes sort of an echo chamber on things which are already known or understood in a particular way. And I think decolonizing without sort of setting out a particular direction out of that echo chamber encourages us to reflect critically on what voices we're listening to from the very beginning of a research project, you know, the sort of conception of the project, 
how much is this informed by the people who perhaps we'll be working with? How much is it oriented towards publication in the West for a Western audience? And, and those sorts of questions lead us perhaps to create new networks which support different kinds of research questions and also perhaps sort of make us open to critiques of the way that things have been done before. And so the way in which decolonizing operates in a research project from my perspective is really in terms of thinking through the whole process from the very beginning. Often people in my field have a sort of collaborative participatory element once they're starting to gather the data. But I would argue that decolonizing starts with thinking of the research questions collaboratively with participation of those groups who will be involved. And the analysis and writing up and then the dissemination of the results also can follow through with a more collaborative and participant-led process of research. And I think that the motivations for me to think in those ways were really from my own experience and the way in which it has led me to recognise that the people who I work with, particularly most recently Indigenous women in Ecuador, the way that I've been guided by them to really listen to their knowledge of the topics that I wanted to understand better. And I was tending to use frameworks of analysis that came from the West. I haven't jettisoned those completely. But what the women in their conversations with me demonstrated is that they were also holders of very important knowledge about the development policies or citizenship on the ground and aware of issues that to me otherwise would have been invisible or just not possible to incorporate into my thinking about the topic. So I think that it's very much a sort of motivation of respecting and listening to the Indigenous women that I was working with. That obviously doesn't exist in isolation. I think another motivation is that in many practices within geography, in my discipline of human geography, there has been a very strong colonial extractivist model of research in which research is then brought back into the university in the UK, into the geography conferences and so on. And that means that the ways in which it could inform or be part of wider conversations in Latin America weren't necessarily highlighted. It's interesting hearing you speak because it makes me think that actually decolonizing the research question doesn't have to be something that's radically different from the sort of tools that we already have in our toolkit, as especially as a feminist methodologist, I'm thinking, you know, that commitment to the subject reflexivity and the notion of participatory research, which is becoming, I think we're getting an awful lot more written about participatory research at the moment. And for our listeners, we do actually have a podcast coming up about participatory research, where we've got somebody taking part in that interview who would normally be considered to be the subject, who is also the researcher um, in this context. But I wonder if you could tell us about some of the key themes which have arisen when you approach research in this way and have the idea of decolonizing the research question sort centre stage and I mean possibly you might be able to draw on some experiences from field work about how this has sort of changed the research that you're doing. Well, I suppose that maybe it's interesting to go into the sort of ways in which I felt that I learnt during the process of collaborating with Indigenous women in two different areas of Ecuador. As I had initially gone to talk to various different Indigenous female leaders, I had proposed that women were going to be given recorders and they would record a sort of diary, an audio diary, and that they could address certain issues which the Indigenous women leaders had helped me refine because they thought they were priorities. That 
I felt like was starting from a decolonizing perspective. When I then started to make contact with and working with particular grassroots women leaders, they were then saying the women in my area do not have time to record an audio diary. You know, they just have so much work that they have to do. And there's another way that we could do this research. So they were very proactive in proposing alternatives to what I had originally thought would work. And they said, why don't you come along to our meetings? And while the meetings, which usually last for a day, and they bring together women from different villages and different communities to discuss you know, it may be issues around sexual and reproductive rights, for example, or new forms of agricultural products that they can create to make some more money. In those workshops, you can then talk to women, see if they would like to be interviewed. And I thought, yeah, this is going to work. This is going to be great. And of course, what was really clever about this was the fact that I was also attending these whole day meetings and then talking to this grassroots woman leader on the bus going out and back from that meeting. And what I was learning, of course, was about the group view on different policies and different approaches to citizenship rights or to development and improvements in livelihood. And I think that really highlighted for me and it really pushed me to kind of think of decolonizing as coming out of the opportunity to work in a way that was different to what I had anticipated originally. And that then leads on to my current project where I have um, working with a postdoc who is from Latin America and also in due course, we will be employing two research assistants in each of the case study areas who are going to be Indigenous people from that area. So the idea is that the contribution of those members of the groups that I'm going to be working with is going to be fully recognised through that employment, but also, crucially from my point of view, their role in the production of knowledge from the very beginning in the design of the research questions, in the collection of the data, in the analysis, and then writing up and dissemination of that material is going to involve a good number of people who really know that area and that group and that situation very well. And I myself then become a minority in the research team. And I think that also is an interesting change to the dynamic of the research project. And like I say, this is not perfect. I mean, I'm sure we will hit some bumps along the road in this process. But I feel that compared with the earlier project with the Indigenous women, I have learned certain things. and I'd like to take those forward in the current project. So I think our next question flows on really nicely from that. And it's actually my favourite question because I think we are all apprentices for most of our life as social scientists. I wonder if you could tell us what advice you'd give a younger self about doing research. Yes, I like this question as well. So (laughs) I think that And this is obviously one also tries to pass on these lessons to one's own graduate students and so on. I think that, you know, especially looking back at my own experience doing my PhD research in the 1980s, I would be much less concerned about getting certain kinds of data that I felt would be possible to analyse in the frameworks that had been developed in Europe and North America. I think I would give myself advice to say, listen more to what Raywin Connell calls Southern theory. In other words, theorizations, important frameworks of analysis that have emerged from thinkers in different parts of the global South who have re-articulated maybe Marxism, it may be post-structuralism, whatever, but it is an example of how those have been really reworked in ways that make them powerful frameworks for understanding a local situation, a situation in a post-colonial context. I would also, and this relates very much to what I was just saying, I think I would urge my younger self to listen 
listen much more carefully to what my informants are saying and to really put myself in the position of somebody who has to relearn things. We're taught that, you know, by the time you get to a PhD, you know certain things that one goes out and then somebody talks about participation in development, for example. And you think, oh, well, I know all of the literature on participation in development. But of course, one isn't necessarily listening carefully and encouraging your interlocutor to expand on what they understand by that term, because sometimes these terms sort of seem to offer a bridge between two different kinds of experience, whereas actually people are using them in very different ways and have very different understandings of those terms. So I think that those would be my two main lessons, I guess. And I think that's great advice, especially for the lawyers who are listening, who are in the process of converting themselves to becoming social scientists. Because as lawyers, I think we're trained to talk rather than listen. And it's a big step up, really, to learn to be quiet sometimes. <laughs> but I speak as a, a former lawyer myself. Um, Sarah, you've also recommended four texts for people interested in this method to read. Could we start with uh, Penelope and Thais? Yes. I mean, it's a bit cheeky to put this one on the list because Penelope is one of my former PhD students, but her work stands on its own merits. And I wanted to include it because to me, the work does a lot of things which I think are very important when we're talking about Indigenous people to an audience that is non-Indigenous on the whole. And her work is ethnographic. It was um, undertaken over many months, living alongside people in the Chaco in Bolivia and playing football as much as talking to them over sort of more formal meetings. And it really situates that group's long-standing search for recognition of their territory and their claims to security that they felt that that territorial right would grant them. It really looks at that not only in the terms of the meanings that that territory holds for that group, but also relates it to legal change in policies around Indigenous rights, particularly from the sort of 1990s and then again in the early 2000s. And it situates it in relation to gas extraction in that area and the rise of a sort of new extractive economy in that area, which was going to have big transformational effects on the territorial claims and the legal context within which they were trying to operate. And what I think is interesting about that, and there are, of course, others that do this too, but it really reminds us that Indigenous people are not somehow suspended outside all of these major structural changes and that we have to understand claims that might be based on a very specific ethnic or place-specific claim relate that to that wider context which the Indigenous people concerned are very aware of and very much responding to in the efforts to pursue their goals. So that's an example. And it highlights, too, a point that I've made earlier, which is that the sort of complexity of decolonizing, that there's no simple outcome to a particular claim or a particular legal change. And decolonizing is, for those Warani in the Chaco, is an ongoing process. It's a sort of ongoing struggle, and that's highlighted in the close work there. Another book that I had listed for you was Linda Tuhiwai Smith's book. She is a Maori scholar who has written extensively, most famously in this book, about the specificity of doing research with Indigenous people. She is particularly interested in giving examples and exploring the situation for Maori in New Zealand. 
but the book itself offers a really useful sort of statement for people who are not Indigenous to remind them about the importance of thinking of the history of research and the way that it has engaged Indigenous people and the need to change those very extractive processes that really have given Indigenous people very little autonomy over the collection of data in their communities. But she is very clear about the fact that research is still a very important process to go through and that it is valuable for many Indigenous people to have that research. And she and many others are now, of course, increasingly highlighting the importance of protocols or memorandum of understanding as the framework within which research collaborations with Indigenous people can take place. And we see that in Canada, we see that in the United States, we see that in Latin America in certain places. And that's a very powerful statement with regards to that. Then I think another piece that I had put on the list is the anthropologist Rachel Cedar, her chapter, which is an introduction to a book entitled Demanding Justice and Security. That I put on the list because it's an introduction to a three-year project over 11 sites in Latin America involving Indigenous women in their negotiation over what they call in the book plural legalities. And I thought that would be of interest to your socio-legal scholars because the chapter really introduces the kinds of plural dynamics around law, the sort of existence of customary law nested within national statutory law, the use by indigenous movements of elements of international law. So all of these sort of multi-scalar elements to that. And the approach taken in that three-year study was a very collaborative ethnographic study involved collaboration with Indigenous women leaders, but also their grassroots communities. And the emphasis was on fieldwork with those groups in their own locations, a lot of observation, a lot of use of workshops to sort of generate conversations rather than having a sort of one-to-one in an interview, the use of videos and popular education materials to disseminate and share the results of the research, and also the collection of testimonies, which is a method of capturing an in-person's narrative as a coherent intervention in a particular presentation of history or of a process. And those can often be recorded, they might be videoed, and then they can be shared with members of that community afterwards. And so all of these elements came together in their analysis. And the chapter is interesting for early career scholars because it's quite explicit about the methodology that they used. One often finds that people, when publishing their research, don't necessarily talk in much detail about the methodology that was used. But here there's a discussion of the sort of what they call the public scholarship that they tried to do. In other words, this is involved in engaging in a public conversation in these Indigenous groups around particular issues of not just the kind of struggles over legality, but also the kinds of experiences of violence that the Indigenous women are experiencing. So I think that was my three And you've also offered up one of your own pieces, The Dilemmas of Difference, Indigenous Women and the Limits of Postcolonial Development Policy, which we'll also be adding to the list that goes with the podcast, just because we find that people like to delve a little bit deeper and learn more about the speaker's research. So thank you so much. That's been a really, really valuable podcast, which I think is going to be listened to a lot. Thank you, Sarah, for your time.
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this Talking About Methods session. If you'd like to see the list of publications that we referred to in the podcast, please go to frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk. If you have any ideas for a blog or a podcast, please do get in touch with Linda Mulcahy at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies. Thanks again. Bye.